0: It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling
1: me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered.
0: Your purchase is made through our links. Give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions.
1: We covered a lot of great movies that were adapted from other material in season 10.
0: Our originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals is where listeners can purchase the source material behind all our adapted film discussions. It helps support the show at no extra cost when you buy through our links.
1: In our foreign language best picture nominees series, we looked at several adaptations, including Z, The Postman Il Postino, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Letters from Iwo Jima.
0: We hit the high seas with In the Heart of the Sea from Nathaniel Philbrick's nonfiction book for our Aquatic Killers series. Eh, Definitely a weaker entry in that series. I bet the book is better. Oh, me too. Remember, bonus episodes featured adaptations like Gone Girl, The Russia House, Ivanhoe, The Hot Rock, The Big Heat, and Naked Lunch?
1: Oliver Stone brought not just original stories, but also adaptations like Conan the Barbarian, Scarface, Year of the Dragon, 8 Million Ways to Die, Talk Radio, and Born on the 4th of July.
0: Mary Heron's disturbingly insightful American Psycho was adapted from the Brett Easton Ellis book. You like Huey Lewis and the News? Oh my god, it even has a watermark! And of course,
1: more Stephen King with The Mist, The Green Mile, and The Shawshank Redemption for our King a la Darabont series.
0: Find links to all of these books and more adapted films on our Originals page. That's thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports our show.
1: Get the full list of books that we've talked about and start your next read today at thenextreel.com/originals.
0: I'm Pete Wright and I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel when the movie ends, our conversation begins. Z is over. It's time to sell our eyeballs to the Americans. It's, it's Maître, j'ai instruit cette affaire et je n'ai pas besoin de vos conseils. Ils ont appris que j'avais des révélations importantes à vous faire. Et en venant ici, une voiture a essayé de m'écraser. All right, Andy, here we are. Z. Z. Z, 1960. Day. Yeah, 1969, political thriller. It's an assassination thriller that is um, uh, in between the leftists and the rightists and the military, the gendarmerie. Uh, and it is... Uh, Another in our series of uh, foreign language best picture nominees. It is. You're
1: right. This is the second of the films that have been nominated uh, that weren't English language that were nominated for Best Picture from 1969, Costa Gavras'
0: film Z. Thing that I learned I've been re- uh, uh, pronouncing Costa Gavras' name wrong hmm. all these years. Always thought it was Costa Garvas. <laughs> So, step one, the R is after the V. Right, right. And uh, did you,
1: like, I always wondered about his name. I just never did any research into it, but I'm like, what an odd, like, Madonna type of name to have your name, but it's like a hyphenated name. And I was like, is it is it just right. his last name, but he happened to have a hyphenated last name? But no, in fact, it's, it's uh, his name is, let's see if I can pr- work on my Greek here, Konstantinos Gavras. Konstantinos Gavras. And uh, he I just, I guess, took the abbreviated short version Costa Gavras for his filmmaking work.
0: All right, Andy. So th- this one is definitely it's got a bit of different feel. It feels uh, it is uh, definitely taking uh, on a, a really interesting story and presenting it in an incredibly interesting way. When is the last time you saw a movie that opened with uh, any uh, resemblance to real people? Is intentional on screen,
1: right? Never. This, I thought it was fascinating. I'm sure I've seen some like I, mm-hmm. I couldn't think of what they are, but I had not seen something that just felt so bold and just like in your face like, hey, yeah, this is all intentional. All of these references to people. It's all meant to be that way. And it taught me a new word that I feel like I've read before, but I feel like because of the fact that clef is in it, I think I've always associated it with a musical term, finally learning that I've been wrong all these years. Uh, Romana Clay uh, is actually uh, a—the definition of it is—well, technically, it's French for novel with a key, but it is uh, generally a novel about real-life events Overlaid with just a facade of fiction, so it's fictitious names representing real people, which is what we have here. I am uh, glad to know the proper uh, way to say that word and what it actually means.
0: Well, I'm thrilled to hear that you've learned something, and
1: <laughs> once in a while, by extension, it does happen. <laughs> are
0: able to teach it. Uh, so this this movie does tell a, a story um, as if by puppet theater, it tells a story of uh, a sort of a, uh, a plot to uh, disrupt the a, a liberal agenda. Right, and, yes. um, and so we open, this movie opens with a, a rally, um, a demonstration, they're planning a demonstration. I should say, I, actually, let me step back. The movie opens with a, a military and police briefing. Uh, and we're learning about um, virus or, or uh, uh, disease spreading, yeah, molds and mildews spreading in plants. And they use it as a way to introduce the uh, a colonel who stands up and starts teaching about the, the same way mildews spread in foliage. So do ideas spread like these sorts of diseases and uh, use it as a way to talk about stamping out The uh, leftist agenda, which was
1: actually something that uh, speaking to the Romana Clay nature of this story is what the Greek politicians, the government was actually using as a ways to describe, you know, all of these leftist ideologies of the time
0: fascinating. So now let's let's talk about that as we that introduces us to the world of this movie. And then we meet a lot of people one after the other. (laughs) Uh, But but how are you feeling at this point as you uh, embark on your journey with this movie?
1: The first time I watched this, which was not too long ago, I was hit by how fresh the film was, how uh, uh, direct costa gavras made it with such uh intention and uh just momentum it was it it really was just it it felt like you know modern filmmaking it like just it was it grabbed me right away like right with the credits the way the music hits and the way that the credits kind of slam in and out and just everything was was just I, i just thought there was such an energy to the film for a story that is all about a political assassination, essentially, I just I felt like he found a way to grab attention right away and created this story that just uh, I mean, it was really a fascinating journey through watching how things played out over the course of this, uh, you know, the buildup to the uh, I, I guess we're calling it an assassination attempt, although I don't think it was—or murder, although I don't think it was uh, intended necessarily to actually result in death. i I'm a little not sure about if there, if it was intended or not. Regardless— Injury, certainly. And uh, the way that it then kind of the story unfolds with the investigation and leading to that ending that I just think is just like, I mean, it hit me like something that is like so incredibly re- relevant still. And I just, I was really kind of blindsided by this film because I didn't, I, I'd always heard of it, but had no idea um, what power the film actually had. I found it to be an incredible watch and rewatch.
0: I, I think he, Costa Gravis does an exceptional job of presenting this opening section this is sort of act one of the the rally, the preparations for the rally, the different factions that are operating on the streets and, and in these office buildings and, um, you know, going through the preparations of finding a hall. Is there a hall that's big enough? Um, and how do we portray the the actual like figurehead? Right. Because we, we hear, you know, the doctor is coming, the doctor is coming. There's a, there is apparently a plot. Against the doctor's life, but who is the doctor, and how will we know who the doctor is? And um, Yves Montand comes on scene as as you know Z as this sort of uh, figurehead, and he's tall and handsome, and uh, you know puts his arm around everybody he sees, and he's just generally lovable. And so now we have this sense of you know the key players and the idealism and the ideologies at at work here, right in the square on this street. In front of this union workers' hall, and uh, and it all, to my mind, comes together beautifully and it's all in a space that could otherwise be incredibly confusing uh they're all wearing the same thing right besides the the military police um you know everybody else on the street is they're they're wearing the same thing they're just angry at each other and yet i felt like i never lost sense of space i never lost sense of character in terms of who was who and and what they were ultimately trying to silence and what and and um you know in reverse, what they were ultimately trying to voice. I thought that was beautifully portrayed.
1: Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's it's kind of a, just an astounding piece of, of filmmaking, the way that he weaves this story with, like you said, so many players, and a lot of players with faces that aren't as recognizable, right? I mean, we have a few pretty well-known french actors in the film but also there are just a lot of other faces that are you know aren't as as well-known mm-hmm. and so you're kind of relying on the fact that okay there's a bunch of these different deputies there's a bunch of these different police there's a bunch of uh, people who are um kind of the the I guess we'll call them the troublemakers, the 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 ones who the police use to kind of mm-hmm. create these problems and everything. And uh, the journalists and, and everybody's kind of coming in and out of their lives. And even when we meet a new character, uh, it all of a sudden it's like, OK, well, they were just talk- like uh, the the. Um, the witness partway through the film, we all of a sudden have this witness who says it was a murder. And then we cut as soon as we learn, we cut to this guy we've never seen before, just kind of strolling down the street and I'm like, oh, okay, well, he must be the witness. So, I mean, they 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 make it pretty <laughs> Nick, clear yeah. how yeah. it happens. And then he's just kind of strolling down the street. And of course, he gets hit hit on the head by by a, a, a somebody in a van who uh, doesn't want him to make it to um, his statement. And it's just, I don't know, I just found the way that the construction worked to really paint kind of the, I think, the uh, tense political climate that was in Greece at the time. Although I, I, I think it's meant to be set in Greece, it's it the film never really specifically says it's it's french um actors costa gavras was greek but pretty much raised in france they filmed it in algeria uh because they couldn't find they couldn't i mean greece was never going to let them make a movie like this and but
0: algeria looks pretty mediterranean. They picked mediterranean like exactly yeah. for
1: that right yeah because it had very much that that look and so Yeah, I think that it's—the way that the story moves, it's just—I think it's just when you're setting up a political thriller like this with a lot of different opposing sides and a lot of—it's interesting, uh, Rashomon-esque type of storytelling, I guess we could almost say, right, where you -hmm. you see a few different things play out, like the actual assassination uh, from different points of view, and you're not necessarily— Um, seeing it like from the way that they saw it. Sometimes you're seeing the way that they're wanting it to be portrayed as in they're lying. And I thought that was actually kind of really interesting the way that everything kind of um, was, Built. It was just incredibly constructed.
0: That was that was a, that's a beautiful observation, and it reminded me of you know even when you talk about modern filmmaking. I, I was shaken when we started having those perspective reports that would would replay the flashbacks differently. I, I thought that was incredible, and lo and behold, we just talked about that in Knives Out using the exact same visual trope. What a, a wonderful sort of honorific. Um, to this sort of historical treatment of of the way we can talk about narrative and and replaying stories. I thought that was great. I do want to highlight um, your conversation about Nick, the witness who gets hit over the head. Mm-hmm. And, and in particular, what I, I find is so strong about the way they introduce him as a character so late in the movie um, that he walks out before we know anything about him. He walks out on the street. He's hit on the head and wakes up in the hospital. But after that, they introduce not just a little bit of his backstory, where did he come from, but more story about the initial narrative. The fact that he is also a, um, you know, he makes coffins and varnishes coffins and he overheard this and that from the delivery guy. Like there's so much story introduced after we introduce this character more than halfway through the movie I, and and to do it in a way that doesn't end up feeling clumsy i think was was uh, a a real sort of testament to skill in and confidence in in being able to do this he uses very similar sort of uh tropes on a very smaller scale when you look at how he cuts together um helen's sense of grief now she's lost her husband she finds out that her husband has ultimately been murdered um and isn't going to make it out of the hospital and the way he cuts together her Memory of experience, like sense memory of experience when someone touches her face and she flashes back and it feels like it's actually his hand on her face. And, um, you know, as she's holding him, hugging him, these quick cuts back and forth between her real lived experience and her sense memory of him over the course of just a minute or two, I think, was uh, really elegant.
1: And I'm glad you brought that up as well, because I thought what was interesting with the way that that was intercut was we also have a similar moment when we're with her husband, the deputy, uh, Yves monton when he has a memory. Uh, this was when he first arrives at the place where they're going to have the meeting. And he's, uh, he, I can't remember exactly what it is that triggers it, but suddenly you the have The wig. This, yes, the The woman who's right.
0: like massaging the wig. Right, right. He sees the <laughs> wig. It's a little weird, honestly. And,
1: and it flashes back for him to this woman that he had an affair with who was wearing a wig and his wife happened to walk in. And just a great way to just give us a sense of who these characters are. And you get that before you end up meeting Helene and then you meet her and you know that she's carrying that Damage from their relationship, but then also we have now like the way that she's having these little memories of her husband and everything. It was just it was beautifully constructed, and I love the way you get the moments with these characters that really paints their their uh, who they are. It gives us a real good sense of them and the depth of those particular moments, and I think that Costa Gavras really used that effectively throughout finding ways to bring these flashbacks in. Like you said, with Nick, where we get the flashbacks to when he overhears it same way when we hear the, um, the mystery figure that, uh, you know, one of the guys, uh, wife happened to be with it at, at her place of work. And he had, uh, likewise had a similar situation where he had, um, been talking to the guy and kind of heard the whole thing. And and later when he's explaining it, we kind of have the similar way that the flashbacks play out. It's just, it's really sharp filmmaking. And it just, I, I just think it, it works so well in context of the style of film that is being portrayed here. Uh,
0: just while we're on the subject of Nick in particular, uh, as played by George, George, Ger- Ger- Geray, uh who is great. The tone changes in the movie with his introduction a little bit. And maybe it's not over the, the entire film, because I still think, you know, when we're ever we're in the, um, you know, in the space of Jean-Louis Trintignant, um, you know, the the prosecutor, um, I feel like it's still a, a really so- sober portrayal of the investigation and the pressures that he's under, you know, trying to walk both sides of this particular um, uh, this particular issue um i I think Nick and his sister are a real distraction for me his sister played by Magali Noel um, she comes in and she is completely over the top in her portrayal of uh concern and and fear and grief and it's it turns from this is an interesting character that's going to illuminate something about this story to whenever she's on screen it becomes Kind of a comical sort of vaudevillian or or a lampoon of uh, an, of grief of investigation of um, you know all of this stuff <laughs> and not not to you know uh, not to take away from his he's also kind of a grandstander right I mean when the when the the uh, photojournalist comes in and he's taking pictures he's like taking his shirt off and he's like smiling with the ice pack on his head like all of these sort of things kind of make me crazy.
1: Well, but I I think that it speaks to the nature of just people. And, you know, we get the deputy. I mean, he's a great guy, but he's also having an affair. Here we have Nick who wants to do the right thing. He wants to say, look, I saw I heard all this information. It was murder. It wasn't actually an accident. But at the same time, he really just wants to get his picture in the paper because this guy who he thinks is kind of this bum who's this driver, he already has his picture in the paper. And now he's like, I want to get mine. Right. And so I think that that's an interesting exploration we have here but then i also think we're getting the other side and that's why i think i I agree nick's sister you know may be seen as kind of an over-the-top kind of um uh overpowering type of figure in the story but i think it speaks to the nature of of people not wanting to get it in their you know not wanting to get involved in these sorts of situations because it's like this could really screw things up for us. You know, we're just little people. We're, you know, we don't want to have our lives destroyed by involvement in this machine that is so much bigger than we are. We just want to play our little part and just kind of go through life. And that's that. And I think that that's a really interesting uh, element that we see that really only comes through in Nick's sister is the idea of not wanting to be involved. And I think that, I mean, I think it's equally relevant that there are people out there who are just like, I just, I want to You know, I'm going to close my eyes to it and just going to keep moving through my life because I need things to work, uh, work the way they are, because I'm I'm, you know, one of the the low end people. It's hard for me to get. It's hard for me. It's hard for my husband to get licenses. We have to go to these people to get licenses for our shop. And and I found it to be an actually really interesting element to the story.
0: Well, and I agree with you. I think that's a I I think that is an interesting element to the story. I I think the performative criticism that I have is that she is an apt demonstration of the perils of 1960s women on film, which is this is a one note portrayal. Right. This is there. There is no sense of nuance. There's no sense of of, like they don't give her the opportunity to have anywhere near the same impact on screen that we get from someone like, for example, the attorney uh, who is chased down by the car. Right. I mean, he ultimately has not a huge part in the movie, but we get a lot more of, of him. We get an opportunity to see him in different spaces, right, in different sort of emotions emotional spaces and we don't get that from her and and that's frustrating uh, a little bit to me because i think you're 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 right like there is a great opportunity to have this experience with her of fear of just trying to be uh, a pedestrian in this chaos and um and and i don't think we have the opportunity to do that i think her portrayal the way she was directed uh distracts from from that element. And and I would say the second act, too, if we look at this as sort of a like for me, this was a law and order or I've just binged Perry Mason. And so you have the 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 act or the investigation and then you have the courtroom scene. Right. Well, this we have the act, we have the the rumble in the square and then we have the investigation. And uh, I think that I loved the entire first half of this movie and when it turns over to the investigation my goodness it it became a a real sort of snooze for me a a difficult experience with highlights um Hmm. i just did not i just did not enjoy my time until he injected it with some of these more sort of uh visual master strokes these uh you know editorial choices that that i think were were really particularly strong but uh, overall I feel like we got the same conversation with the same mustachioed colonels over and over and over again, and I was ready to be done with it.
1: Interesting, interesting. I, for me, I just I was mesmerized the whole time, the the whole second act. I mean, really, the whole film, and I, I just think a lot of it is just. The complexities that the magistrate is is going through as he tries to investigate this crime and finding, you know, dead end after dead end as he keeps going down a road. And then, you know, hearing, you know, their, you know, their alibi is confirmed, their alibi is confirmed. And the way that that played over and over again throughout, I just found so interesting in every little step. And I just loved watching the way that Jean-Louis uh, Trintignant, I don't know how you say, Trintignant, how do you say that in French? Trintignant. <laughs> <name? laughs> Trintignant, Trin- Trintignant, Trintignant, Jean-Louis yeah. Trintignan. <laughs> it's very, it's yeah, it very French. <sighs> yeah. I, I love watching him throughout because the way that he observed and then you could see in his eyes little glimmers when he started latching onto things. And I, I loved when he would catch lines that people would repeat or... Those different elements. What is the he... line?
0: It's your favorite line, lithe and it, something
1: something. Yeah, lithe and fierce like a tiger. I just thought yeah, that was like great. Like you,
0: it's yeah. just like me. That's right? gonna be on your headstone.
1: <laughs> That's all that will be on my headstone. <laughs> uh, the uh, but I loved the way that that he latches onto things like the the little communist thing that he latches mm-hmm. onto with Vago and finds these little things that he can kind of grab. And that's why I really enjoyed watching the second half, because I just found him and his investigation, the way that he started piecing this together, because, I mean, it is it is everybody lying, right? Mm-hmm. Except for people who are really kind of on the deputy's side and and watching. Uh, but then even then, he, as we learn, he has to assume that there is a lot of lies coming from their side, too, which I found really interesting, the way Way that he's trying to kind of piece everything together. And so yeah, the, as yeah. as the story builds and we get to like that master stroke editing where we have uh, just uh, the uh, kind of the final kind of round of everybody coming in and, he, and he's kind of um, the last bit of people coming in and then all the accusations of everybody going out. I just found the editing there just brilliant the way that everybody like he's just totally disregarding the attorney general and he's just <laughs> accusing everybody of murder and just like like. I don't know. I just felt like the film just kept building and building and for me it worked incredibly well. I just couldn't get over how smart it was.
0: Well, and I would I would agree with you, like the last 15 minutes of the film was fantastic. And those accusations and you I I feel like you kind of sped by the secret meeting with the district attorney or the attorney Mm. general right? right, where he comes in and they take him into that incredibly sort of um, that that courtroom. Right. right, Which Mm -hmm. is a, a space of great power where he's it's it's his home turf and he sets the sets him in one of the sort of peripheral seats and the attorney general stands in the middle and and essentially. Gives him the offer he can't refuse, right? Like you're you are meddling with the primal forces of nature, <laughs> Mr. Beale, and I will not have it seen, right? I, I felt like that was fantastic and subversive. And and some of the challenge I have with the second act is the fact that, you know, you are when you have hitched your wagon to this particular horse, right, to telling a real story with fictitious names. And in this case, the story of the murder of Grigoris Lambrakis just, you know, six years before Um, you you have to do due diligence and put all the people that you're that 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 sort of were in there in that the real life scenario. You've got to find a way to shoehorn them in to demonstrate the level of corruption that they're dealing with, which is extraordinary. It's so extraordinary that you think, my God, it is beyond cinema. Like if you were sitting down to write a screenplay, you would not have this many villains <laughs> right. you. It is too much. And so he's already sort of made that commitment. And I think that is um, that, that's just this just goes with the territory. For me, that space between entering into Trintinion's territory and watching him go through this, you pulled out the highlights of the things I really liked. Anytime the mustachioed colonels come in, I start to uh, nod off getting me <laughs> to that big climax I am I'm totally with you and I definitely want to hear your take on the way they end the movie. What a weirdly artful way to give us an epilogue.
1: I thought it was genius, just like everything else. It was just it it was such a A slap in the face because you you here you have this this investigator who's like you know what I'm going to do the right thing I'm going to not heed the advice from the attorney general I'm going to move forward and accuse all of these people uh, police military government whoever it is I'm going to accuse them of murder of involvement in this crime and we're going to go down the the row and the way that it's done I just found to be incredible because you have. First, you have the actual accusations where he's kind of letting them know you're accused of murder, and then he sends them out through the, quote, back doors uh, to avoid the press, which eventually the press latches onto and By the time the the main general goes out, it's like all the press is out there waiting Mm -hmm. for him. Uh, Just fantastic. But then you cut to the reporter as he is giving you this update, basically, of everything that's happened. And it's like, oh, all of these witnesses? Well, you know, seven of them are dead. This one died of a suicide. This one died in an accident. This one fell out of a
0: window. And it's just oh, like look, a mechanical failure. <laughs> right. It's, there's a, a body like hanging over a combine. Right.
1: You you see like the, 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 the reporter talking about these witnesses. And then what I think is really smart is you're seeing kind of the uh, – Actual photos of like what really happened to the real person in the story as we kind of go through this and you just keep going. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it's the investigator because the new government comes in and now he's he's. Killed, and it's like everybody keeps having things happen to them. And then we cut to a new reporter who talks about the old reporter being accused of crimes for you know I can't remember what, but it's just like now he they're going literally after everybody in the film, and they're all found guilty or accidentally die before they can testify. Right. And and then when the new reporter comes in to say all that then it turns into this moment that you know all I could think of was like I think it was the teaser trailer weird place to go to in my head but the teaser trailer for Escape from LA not a great film to compare to this (laughs) but what I loved about that trailer is it's like you know it's listing this you know this row of list of things that that are banned now and it goes through things like please you're in, in the theater please no talking no chewing gum no chewing with your mouth open and it keeps going and it's all all of a sudden it's just like to the point of ridiculousness of things that are banned. And it's like, geez, this is crazy. And that's what happens at the end here, when you just start going through all these authors that are banned, all these different artists that are banned. Just everybody's that, that's banned and banned, banned, banned. It's this huge list that goes across the screen, ending in the letter Z. The letter Z is banned because of the use of the you know the reference to uh, to this whole this person, Zabrakas, who in the whole he lives movement by painting the Z around.
0: I it's just I like wow. I couldn't help but think about uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we apologize for the fault in the subtitles. Those responsible have been sacked. <laughs> mind you moose bites can be pretty nasty. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, those, those responsible uh, that, for sacking have been sacked. Have been sacked. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's the reporter twist at the end which I thought was so funny uh, unintentionally. Like I get it. It was a great twist to have a new reporter's voice come in as the old reporter. It was it was um for leaking or publishing official documents. That's why he yeah, went right. to prison yeah. uh that reporter. It was uh yeah, I that I I thought that was a great a great way to end it and deeply sad right that oh absolutely. you know as they start talking about other i was gratified that one of the things on the list that you mentioned i'd like to call out by name which is new math <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh goodness if we could ban new math that's too funny <laughs> anyway well move, uh, move to
1: greece in the 60s
0: yeah right <laughs> <laughs> right right they've already done it all right, <laughs> got rid of it. Uh, anybody else in the uh, in the cast you want to call out by name? I think we've we've talked about uh, uh, Yves Montand. This is tall and graceful. He's a gazelle. Oh yeah, and it's funny because
1: I I I feel like like his name is just such a a name. But I, I was like, you know, I think I know him more from some songs that he sang because he was very popular mm-hmm. as a singer uh, and an actor. But I think the songs is is what um, I knew him more from. Uh, just just a great personality here and what a great person to play a politician and for me the best moment of him in the film is when he goes back out he's been hit in the head by one of these uh, uh, troublemakers outside he goes in he does his speech which is great and just as a side note all of this film felt so much like i was watching You know the United States four months ago, like after the the killing of uh, George Floyd and Mm -hmm. um, the just the all of the riots and the protests, a lot of the kind of the peaceful protests, and then reports of who are these mysterious figures dropping crates, you know, crates of bricks off. You know, I'm just like, wow, this all feels way too real watching this yeah like
0: this is this a movie or a blueprint yeah
1: like it was gross it really was like all the way through the way that the accusations flew at the end i'm like i feel like i'm watching a movie that's taking place right now it's nuts (laughs) it's crazy uh but anyway Yves Montan. The my favorite moment was when he comes back out and he's going out to talk to the police officer uh who you know he walks away i was like dang dude Cold, um but then two like uh, i guess i'll just call them insurgents like charge out to to uh, get him and he just like boldly stands there and walks up to them and is just like what are you, are you gonna come and then these guys like run away i'm like "God, oh, that is great what a great moment yeah. before of course the truck comes in and they hit him over the yeah. head and kill him
0: also a truck lovingly called a kamikaze yeah right <laughs> <laughs> right uh so that that was uh that was Yago and vago mm, yes. um we've got to talk about vago uh marcel uh, buzufi he is also the the uh center of what i think was some earned comedy in the movie that i quite liked when he was actually going to assassinate nick in the hospital and he was put in the hospital and has a cast on we see him because he tries to sneak in the in the door where nick is is being you know cared for he sneaks in but the the photojournalist is there and they see each other and nick runs and he's running in a robe and his cast on his foot runs down the hall with his club cane gets back into his own bed and like the doctors are all standing there now and he's like huh? oh no doctors are here i mean i mean but but it was which i thought was and, and the was the doctors really funny. like
1: so you're the one with the heart condition. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> no, no, it's my leg. Uh, oh, this cast that has clearly just been put on. Um, he's he's part of the goon squad, and um, he was also in. Uh, uh, I think it's Pierre Nicoli in in uh, The French Connection, and uh, you might know him uh, better uh, from his role in The Casualty Two. Uh, so uh, he's he's one of those really familiar faces. A
1: Really interesting character. I loved that we had these two kind of uh, I don't know. It just it struck me that it's funny that the, the two assassins are Yago and Vago. It's just I, I don't know. know. It just seems like such an assassin thing to have them named so similarly like that. No, uh, but,
0: it's, you know, it's meet my cousins, Hunter and Killer.
1: <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, I was going more for the, this is my cousin, Daryl, my other cousin, Daryl. Daryl. Yeah. (laughs) But what I thought was interesting is that like, they, they, pretty uh, overtly portray him as this gay character and i'm like oh, that was it, it, it's never brought up other than just a couple small scenes and it's, it's never made made anything of and i'm like it's, it's really interesting to kind of like give us those moments of this insight into this character that i mean otherwise it really doesn't matter one way or the other but it just kind of surprised me that we have like at least like two little moments with him where it's like oh interesting
0: are you you're referring to the pinball scene as one of them? Yeah. Well,
1: one when he's talking to his reporter friend and he asks him um as, as he after he, he's another one who just wants the glory of having his name yeah. in the paper,
0: just like Nick, which is really funny. Yeah, no, he's a, he's Nightcrawler, right? I mean, he's you can exactly. tell he's the one who's going to start staging accidents any to any day now. He's right. just one step.
1: He's, from, he's right. Uh, yeah, he pretty much is yeah. right there until yeah. he realizes that. Oh, you know what? <laughs> He's not doing so well. I may not want my name associated. And that's when he that goes so back. Good. He goes back to his reporter friend and says, hey, can you pull my name? And, and then as he's leaving, he says, hey, are you doing anything? And, and his reporter friend is like, ah, you know, I'm working right now. I can't I can't right now. And he kind of gives him a look and then walks away. Like, eh, Interesting. Yeah. And then we have a scene earlier when he and his buddy uh, Yago are they've they've pulled up behind the police lines, and they're like, "Well, what are we going to do? We can't get through here the police lines." And then he kind of, you see them. He's not really paying attention. He looks up, and there's a guy up there who's standing in his underwear watching the crowd and everything. So there's a few little things, but it's like, yeah, interesting, odd.
0: Well, and that was the. the I couldn't tell what they were trying to get at with the. I want to go back to the the, the uh, uh, pinball thing because you know he gets he finishes that conversation with the with the reporter and he walks out and he goes into like this little cafe game area mm-hmm. and he stands next to somebody who's playing pinball and he puts his hand on top of the the other guy's hand who we think ostensibly is a stranger and starts like helping him push the paddle. Like over his hand, over his hand. And it's a very just sort of gentle, like sort of flirtatious touch um, that I thought was a really interesting thing to add. What is the purpose of that? with his character uh, to give us that little bit? Or is it just a cultural thing that's totally normal? It's okay. You can go help people play pinball that you've never met before.
1: <laughs> or is that like something that, that Costa Gavras had heard like as kind of a way to kind of, you know, meet people, yeah. you know, it's like, I, I just don't know, but it was, there were interesting little elements in here that kind of, I don't know, just gave more to Vago than just, you know, than Yago. I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, and, or specifically like if there, if the guy that, that, uh, Vago is portraying right in in real life is somehow gay. We have to have the the narrative connection, right? We have to have the symbolic connection to for us to understand, like, oh, that's an anchor to real life. That's a guy I can track point to point in the real story of the death of our of our politician. Right. That the real person would be Emmanuel Emmanuelidis. Emmanuel Emmanuelidis. <laughs> yeah.
1: That's Excellent. apparently how, yeah. Uh, I will say M- Marcel
0: uh, Bazufi did, a, you know, there's a great fight scene on the back of the comic. So- comma- Kawasaki, Kawasaki, on the back of the kamikaze, uh, and the kamikaze is a. Is, is, we said it's a three wheel delivery truck, right? Two wheels on the back, open bed, small cabin with one wheel under the front. Very sort of common European delivery truck.
1: It makes me feel like they are called kamikazes because it just seems unsafe when you're driving it oh, fast it on a three
0: wheeler. like Wildly that. unsafe, yeah. So uh, at the end of the the scene, you know, it's Yago and Vago in the truck, and they they zip past they knock what's his name on the head and uh, um, or Z they knock Z on the head he falls down in the street and they disappear and another gentleman starts running catches up with the kamikaze on foot jumps in the bed and there ensues a very realistic scuffle. In the back of this truck that just feels to me like a very real fight that these guys would would get in. And they actually did the fight themselves because they had no budget for stunt performers. So (laughs) there they were buzzing down this narrow uh, Algerian street, um, knocking the hell out of each other in the back of this open bed pickup truck. I thought it was great.
1: I did too i and and it speaks to kind of like the documentary nature that the film kind of has sometimes, which also reminded me of the film The Battle of Algiers, another uh, uh film that has this sort of documentary approach to the way that it's told and I, I felt like a lot of those moments that where we were watching these fights like the fights in the street I mean it's just they they cast a lot of real people they had these people where I mean the director said you know they were really getting into it and I, I think it speaks to the Stanford experiment like the people who are dressed Ugh. up like police really got into it with those batons and we had to keep yeah. reminding them you don't really hit people you don't really <laughs> hit people <laughs> because they would get Get so into it. I mean, when you have hundreds of people in like these crazy situations, you can imagine that it just, you know, you're getting excited and getting into it. But uh, Kim, it just Kim, comes across, I think.
0: What what do you think of the culture of batons and clubs in the 60s? Like you note, there are no guns in this movie. Great. And yet people are being murdered everywhere. <laughs> there are a lot of head hitting. A lot of head hitting. So many head hitting. It is ridiculously easy. To kill somebody with a knock on the head is what this movie is demonstrating, right? What's like, it does not take much.
1: Well, what's interesting about that is it seems like they uh, the the doctors should probably have a better immediate understanding when they're yeah. looking at somebody clearly hit on the head. It wasn't the curb. It wasn't <laughs> landing on the ground. Right. Everyone's walking around with a club. Hmm. Let's think right. about what could have caused this injury
0: totally if, <laughs> if if everybody has like a shoulder holster with a club under their jackets like uh it, it's just uh it, it, there's they have they've created a culture of threat around a small wooden club or a baton and enormous like sort of it um masculinity that comes with it. That There was a very strange sequence where all the police have their rubber batons and the camera is low to the street and it's shooting sort of hip level. And all of these rows of organized police with their rubber batons are holding their batons in front of their waist and sort of wagging them up and down. Andy, is that not the rubber penis parade? It just I looked like, why are these guys like wagging their batons in front of their hips as they are and marching toward the protesters like that was a very strange choice for me to figure that out? Both. What is he demonstrating there? Like, why is that a move that the police make? Uh, and 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 why was it important to have on screen? And I just don't know. But it is. Uh, I thought it was really interesting.
1: <laughs> I don't think I saw it quite as uh, overt as you. I felt like it was a little more just kind of to the side. But as they're walking, it just kind of shakes around. But uh, it definitely is a thing. And well,
0: let uh, me just I, say this: you will never see it that way again.
1: Well, you're probably right. Thank you for ruining that. You're Poor welcome. Me. <laughs> I it's it is interesting, and it just I think it speaks to the nature of just the tool that it's, uh, you know, it's designed to be something that is a very um, a masculine uh, power tool, right? I mean, it's something that you have dominance with if you're wielding it. So it, it makes you the alpha male when you have it there. It so. sure
0: does. <laughs> you just described it. That's like you just described the tagline to my new film, The Penis Parade. Yeah. <laughs> This is why people listen to this show.
1: <laughs> Thank you, and good night. And good night. Oh, geez. Hmm. Um, speaking Go to the ahead. cast, I think everyone else, uh, you know, I, I think that they all do really well in their roles. I, I enjoy them. I did want to just point out Jacques Perrin, who is the uh, the reporter. I. It was interesting because I loved that the media here is both portrayed as – honest media trying to get to the bottom of things, like trying to portray the actual truths and everything. But at the same time, Totally, just a, a little criminal who's taking pictures of people when they don't want them to be with the noisiest camera that no one ever seems to hear. I will point <laughs> I'm out.
0: So glad you <laughs> said that. That was ridiculous. Not only is it noisy, he's holding it like up to their faces when he's ph- photographing Helen in her room. There yeah. is no way you don't hear that camera winding in her face.
1: Exactly, and you can. It's it's an older camera. You can like see the yeah the the, uh, the um uh geez i'm blanking on the camera parts but you can see the the um what am i what's the, the spool,
0: right you can see the no, actual no, 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 the spool, why the, the auto winder is actually spinning the opening and right? closing yeah. of
1: the uh uh the, aperture, the iris the, the, iris, the aperture. Yeah. yeah kind of opening and closing as you're as he's doing it so it's like i don't know, just, I don't know pretty obvious pretty yeah. obvious but still anyway all that aside um i i liked that he was portrayed as you know he's trying to do the right thing, tell the truth. But also, he's just like, he wants to make it back. He wants these pictures to be in the big paper because it's, it, it's worth more money. It makes a bigger splash. It gets him more notice. It eventually, gets him into a place he doesn't want it. But, never wanted. but right. still, I, I found him to be really interested. And uh, Jacques Perrin, who plays him, is one of the producers of the film which is kind of an interesting note that he ended up uh, getting cast in this because, again, yeah. low budget. They're kind of <laughs> throwing people in. I mean, the DP ends up in a small role. Um, I, a couple other people end up in these small roles. I can't remember who else. I think it's the um, uh, the editor. He ends up in, in it uh, as a kind of a voiceover. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, use them when you can, I guess.
0: Well, and uh, uh, Shock Perrine, I didn't. Actually, note he's in the film. He's a producer in the film and he's 12 years old.
1: (laughs) Right. Well, he's got his little fuzz.
0: (laughs) Raul Coutard is behind the camera. Uh, I thought, you know, we've already talked about. Some of the uh, really interesting visual things that they do with this. And, uh, you know, to his credit, um, Raul Cotard working with um, uh, uh, Francoise Bonneau uh, as the editor um, and obviously Costa Gavras. Uh, I, I think they just it's a, a fantastic trio to be able to pull off what they did uh, on screen. Modern filmmaking indeed.
1: Definitely a DP who was big in kind of the '60s French cinema. I mean, lots of things: Francois Truffaut, and and just a variety of different films that he had done that are um, very well known. Also with editing, like Breathless. I mean, there's a film with the the way the camera work is, the way mm-hmm. the editing really stands out. So you can see why uh, Costa Gavras would gravitate to someone like him to uh, to film this one.
0: If it, it, there is nothing about it as as improvisational or to your word, sort of documentarian as this film looks often, there is nothing about its presentation that feels incidental, like improvisational, accidental, right? It's all incredibly strategic to my eye. Like it feels so intended. uh, And and I think that's a a great part of its strength.
1: You know, last thing about the the kind of the cast and the crew, a couple last things, but, uh, you know, I think that Costa Gavras, he had said that he really would have loved to get some Greek actors in this, but none of them, because of the story, he couldn't get people who would do it because he knew if they starred in this, they would not be able to go back to Greece. They would not be able to mm-hmm. work in Greece. You know, they're, they would be pretty much be persona non grata or be put up put into a political prison for, uh, for reasons because of what the film is actually saying. I mean, he was, um, I said, you know, a Greek filmmaker, but he grew up and lived in France pretty much his entire life so uh, i don't think that he had to worry as much as some of these greek actors so that's why it's populated with all these french actors and everything but the composer mikis theodorakis um, he is is a greek composer who actually was in a political prison at the time of the making of this film and uh Gavras actually sent his wife to talk to him using her maiden name, and uh, he talked to him, and he said, you know what, you can use my music. Once once kind of explained what they were doing, he said, you can use my, anything that I have done, you can use. He wasn't in a place where he could actually compose anything, obviously, but he said, you know, if it's something that I have written, you can use it. And so they did. They used a, a lot of pieces of his music for this film, including one piece, which he actually, uh, Costa Gabras thought would be really interesting if he played it backwards, uh, which he did. And it's I, I guess when he actually showed the film finally to um, Theodorakis, he uh, was just like, what was that one piece of music? And then he was kind of thrilled to find out that it was just uh, a piece playing backwards. So
0: That's fantastic. I, I like the music. I thought there, there is something, unfortunately, I think to me culturally, that you, I've seen so many movies where this style of music, kind of the bazooki sort of style of Mediterranean music is used for comedic intent that sometimes you see, you know, these sequences that are otherwise particularly threatening and just the instrumentation and the scoring makes it sound funny. And that's all me. Like that's all me, but I can't, I can't watch it and think, okay, where's the pink Panther now? You know, like that's, it's um, uh, it's, I feel a little bit broken. You're like uh, the Monty Python sketch. Shut that bloody bazooka up. Shut that bloody bazooka up. That's right. It all comes back to Python. It right. really does. It really does. Let's talk about awards. Andy, can you give us a review? The Andy Nelson Memorial Review of watching a lot of movies in order to talk about 10.
1: <laughs> I don't like being called uh, having it be called Memorial. It just really I know, just, just I know. <laughs> does not speak well. Yeah. Uh, Yes. Okay. So Z, this was um, uh, nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards, which is why it's uh, in this particular series. Also interesting, uh, this was the first of the foreign language films to be nominated also for the Best Foreign Language Film category, which between 1938, our last film, Grand Illusion, and now had been put into place. Um, So here we are. And uh, I, I guess just giving you a quick rundown of the Oscars that it was nominated for. Best Picture, we already know. A Lost Midnight Cowboy. Best Film Editing, it won. Best Foreign Language Film, it won. And this is that whole thing. It's going to be nominated for both. One is kind of, hey, pat on the back, but we're going to give you Best Foreign Language Film because of that. Uh, Best Director, lost to John Schlesinger for Midnight Cowboy, and Best Adapted Screenplay, lost to Waldo Salt for Midnight Cowboy. So, just a quick rundown, though, Pete. The Best Picture nominees, Midnight Cowboy, Anne of the Thousand Days, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which we've talked about on the show before, Hello, Dolly, and Z. You know, it's it's a pretty good lineup. I mean, between Midnight Cowboy, Butch Cassidy, and Z, I'd say three incredible films. Anne of the Thousand Days, I, I mean, I really like British... Uh, kind of royalty period movies. I thought it was uh, an interesting look at uh, Henry VIII and his wife, Anne. Um, uh, you know, I don't. I, I wouldn't have picked it for Best Picture. Um, Hello, Dolly, I finally watched that, which I had never seen. And let me just say, it is not one of my favorite musicals. It's great that Wally chose to use clips of it, but I was like, oh, this is just <laughs> not for me. I didn't dig it at all. And having to listen to Walter Matthau saying was just not a pleasing experience for me.
0: Was it better Uh, or worse than Burt Reynolds singing?
1: (laughs) Wow. Now that you asked the question.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm sorry if you're going to lay it out there. (laughs) I also have to lay it out there.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you do. You know, I think I would take Burt Reynolds. He's got at least a smoother voice. Uh, Walter Matthau, Uh, yeah. It takes so, lady. (laughs) I don't know. I just couldn't get into that. Um, and, you know, I will say, take Hello, Dolly! out and put in They Shoot Horses, Don't They?, which I just watched. Mm-hmm. Absolutely one of the best films of 1969. Uh, I would put that up there with with those other three films as, like, one of the best films of the year. Just a stunning film that got a lot of nominations but uh, didn't win or didn't get a Best Picture nomination. I think that was a record, actually. I think it had, like, nine nominations and one of them was not Best Picture. Wow. Um, anyway, uh, Z... Uh, going over to the foreign language films, you know, you look at the, the foreign language films that it was nominated against, and uh, uh, let's see, they were Adelin 31, which is a Swedish film about a political uprising, My Night at Maud's, which is a, a French, kind of just a French, oh, and you know, we should say best foreign language film, each country gets to nominate one film or submit one film for nomination. So Z was submitted by Algeria, not France, and France mm-hmm. submitted My Night at Maud's, um, you Yugoslavia, interestingly, submitted a film called The Battle of Nuretva, which the government actually funded. It was a very uh, kind of pro this Hmm. big battle that Yugoslavia won. And then The Brothers Karamazov, which is uh, from the Soviet Union. Um, Some interesting films here, but absolutely for me, Z was hands down the best of all of them. So I think it absolutely should have won a foreign language film for Best Picture. You know, I would be happy to see Z win, but I'd say Midnight Cowboy, Butch Cassidy, those three are incredible options. So I, 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 I'm okay with it having lost Midnight Cowboy. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's definitely one that should be up there.
0: I, I, you know, for me, I think the uh, uh, having seen these three that you're talking about in particular, and my deep love of Butch Cassidy, uh, I still believe Butch Cassidy is is best of the year. But Midnight Cowboy was an exceptional film. John Voight, oh my goodness, is uh, um, it's just great. But um, and and I don't. I guess I just didn't have quite the connection. I feel like when the stars fall uh, with Z, it's in that second act. It just doesn't hold my attention the way these other two movies do. Uh, And so I could feel the bling, 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 the sad stars go out. So it's interesting, though, to look at
1: the two films so far at this point that have been nominated for Best Best Picture that are foreign Mm -hmm. films. It's interesting that both of them feel very much of the political... The kind of the rumblings of mm-hmm. the time, right? Grand Illusion, very much uh, a timely film looking at kind of, uh, you know, multicultural relations right on the heels of, or not on the heels, really, on the cusp of World War II, uh, which I think speaks to kind of the way that that film was seen by audiences at the time and likely why it got nominated. Same thing with Z, 1969. There was a, just so much going on in uh america to see a film like this get nominated for best picture i don't know to me it makes sense because just the way and actually i don't think we said this film was actually shown um i think the black panthers got an early uh copy of the film and they were showing it in like secret uh, kind of screenings around the no country way. in their different groups because of the I mean, just look
0: i mean it makes perfect sense right Oh, absolutely it makes perfect sense. I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic, just sort of motivational film for advocacy. Uh, I think it's interesting that comparison between the Grand Illusion and Z. That the Grand Illusion is a movie that takes the hard stuff and mutes it, right? It it sort of brushes off the hard edges. It's not there's no war. It's it's just the gentlemanly. Here's what happens when gentlemen go to prison, uh, and Uh, And and somehow it was still a a great movie, but I think the absence of such of of the hard stuff makes it, um, you know, lessens its resonance. And this movie is all hard stuff. Right. And and it's the complications of reality and the complications that come with presenting the 1969 reality. Uh, Greek reality through story that I think is um, that that makes this a challenging film to, you know, all the way through. But um, it is it's a fascinating pair. I'm super curious now. Are all of the (laughs) do all of the best pictures through like the end of the 80s, 90s end up being about some sort of uh, military or civil war strife, because there's a lot of fodder in that throughout Europe. There is, but
1: I mean, the next one after this is the emigrants, which we've talked about, and that is not oh. about that. Uh, that right. that comes just a couple years later, and uh, it is definitely, <laughs> definitely not a political thriller of any no, you're kind. Right, uh, you're right. No, totally different. And then after that, we have Ingmar Bergman's Cries and Whispers, which also is kind of just a, a family drama.
0: Yeah. So, all right, interesting, uh, yeah.
1: interesting. Yeah. It will be interesting, though, to kind of look at that once we kind of have gone through all of these and then we've all eleven under the belts to see how often did political strife yeah. uh, create cause for a film to be nominated for this particular role or this particular role? We should probably
0: uh, we should probably talk about that giant database of Algerian box office data that you were able <laughs> right. to uncover to tell us how it did at the box office.
1: Uh, all we know is that Costa gavras film was very low budget. I couldn't find any information for it, unfortunately. Um, so that's that's it. I mean, that's where that's where we are. I can tell you, <laughs> the movie did premiere in France, February twenty sixth, nineteen sixty nine, just uh, a little before, a few months before opening at Cannes in May. It did open here in the States, December 8th, 1969, opposite the other fantastic film. They shoot horses, don't they? As far as how it did, this was a time when they tracked the... It's so tricky. They tracked the number of admissions. So what I have for France is that it had nearly 4 million admissions, and that made it the fourth highest grossing film there that particular year. That gives me no information as far as box office, unfortunately. Here in the States, the film did earn $17.3 million or $120.7 million, uh, in today's dollars, which, uh, you know, uh, does with all of that, um, put it at the top of international films here in the States for some time at least.
0: Fair enough. Andy, uh, I think we should probably take it to the mat. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this very show. If you want some help, because this one's hard to find, uh, because it is a one letter search, uh, you can swipe over in your show notes and tap the word flickchart. It'll take you straight to this film where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up to ours.
1: First up, we have Z or the Birdcage. Hmm. Totally Z for me.
0: Okay, I'll
1: give you Z. I should hope
0: so. Problem <laughs> is, like as I as I ranked it, I'm sitting here, like it it ended up. I'm, I'll spoil it in the bottom half. Interesting. Yeah.
1: Interesting. Well, I'll spoil it. It's definitely in the top half on mine. My... Mm. Z or do the right thing. Let's do the right thing. Z. Wow. Okay. Let's do it. All right, here we go. One, one two, two, three, three. Paper. rock. Ooh, do the right <laughs> thing, takes <laughs> it. <laughs> Z, or Knight of the Living Dead. Knight of the Living Dead. Z. One, one, two, three. three. scissors. Rock. Ooh. Oh, look at that. Two in a row. Come Z, you're in the mood for love. Z uh, for me. <laughs> wow.
0: Um,. All right, I'll give you Z on this one. Wow, okay. Z or Being There? Uh, Being There.
1: I'll give you Being There. All right. Z or Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance? Z for me. Weirdly, I cannot uh... remember Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance or Lady Vengeance at all. Like, those two films I know we've
0: talked about. Lady Vengeance was the one that I had some real trouble with. A brilliant movie, and I struggled with it. Um, Yeah. Sympathy for was old boy. There's
1: there's a different thing there. Yeah, no question.
0: Yeah. Um, Okay, I'll give you Z on this one. Z or the Prestige. I'll say Z. Uh, I'll say the Prestige.
1: All right. Here we go. All right. Well, one, one, two, two, three. three. Scissors. Okay. And Z takes
0: it. It had to come. Z or about a boy. Oh. I'll
1: say about a boy.
0: About a Boy, really. About a Boy is where you break. You are such a softie.
1: I'm an enigma, aren't I?
0: You yes, are. I, it's
1: such a great movie.
0: I'm, I'm About a Boy.
1: Okay. Well, i About a Boy Z- for the soundtrack alone. There's a lot of reasons to love About a Boy. Yeah. Uh, Z lands in spot 191 on our chart. 191 out of 462. Um, that puts it at about 59%, pretty low, pretty low. But for you, okay. pretty
0: high. I well, well <laughs> you know. <laughs> I it, it ran into a, a, a midpoint block on my list that I have a, just a lot of love for and probably irrationally so. But that put mine at the bottom of my list. Um, and, you know, once you get there, it sets it up for kind of grim, grim pickings. How did it end up doing ultimately on your list? Did it break the top ten?
1: Well, well, where did it land on yours?
0: Like how? I was was doing a dramatic, like, uh, like I was holding back. I was trying to be dramatic about that, and and now you're making me say it. It is, um, it's an eight thirty on my list out of fourteen fifty nine, which puts it at forty three percent. Yeesh.
1: Well, this film. I found incredibly fresh, uh, incredibly just powerful. The way that it, the, the cinematic language that Costa Gavras uses, I just was blown away with from start to finish. I think the story works exceptionally well. Everything about it was just you know, spot on for me. Um, it, it ranked high first time I watched it. On a re-rank, it went even higher. It's at 69 out of 4,444 films, which puts that at a 98. Wow,
0: rate. that's beautiful. Oh, I'm I'm actually I'm really I I think that's wonderful. And what I you're because you're right. Like the the visual expression at this film just alone is exceptional. And that's where I think the flick chart letterboxed conundrum exists because for me ultimately while the second act i i struggled with um my overall experience of the film is very very strong so while flick chart tells me that this should be a two-star film uh it i'm i think i'm going to land on four stars and a heart over at, at uh, letterbox.com session x real
1: four and a heart well clearly i'm five and a heart yeah. uh which uh makes uh, it was really no surprise mm-hmm. um based on my Thoughts there, but uh, five stars and a heart. So that gives it an overall four and a half star rating that we will put up on Letterboxd. All right. So where do we go
0: from here? Well, like
1: I said, we already talked about The Emigrants. And let me just tell you, Pete, I did homework for The Emigrants, too, even though we had already talked about it. I'm like, you know, I still should be able to watch all those films that uh, that. it was up against in the years. This was that Mm -hmm. funky one where it was nominated one year for Best Foreign Language Film and then the next year for Best Picture or Mm -hmm. vice versa, I can't remember. But anyway, I did watch all the films that it was up against as well. Um, and I will say, I, I just, you know, I feel like I should just do this since I did spend the time. Um, it uh, was up against, uh, let's see, uh, The Garden of the Finzi and Continues, Kaden, Tchaikovsky, The Emigrants and The Policeman. Those were the films nominated for best foreign language film. The Garden of the Finzi and won. I would absolutely put The Emigrants up there, I thought, uh, of those films it was the strongest. Uh, The Garden of the Fiennes and I'd say, you know, was really good too, but I just really liked The Immigrants. And for the, when it was nominated for Best Picture, um, that was uh, 1973. It was up against The Godfather, Cabaret, Deliverance, and Sounder. Oof, hard to pass The Godfather or Cabaret for me. Um, The Immigrants is a strong film in that roundup though, so... Anyway, we're skipping that one because, as I said, we have covered it, and we're going a couple years later to 1973. We're going to be looking at Ingmar Bergman's Cries and Whispers.
0: You know, sometimes I look, I think about Bergman and I think, man, I can't wait to have seen this. Like, just (laughs) to get it out of the way. (laughs) I think that's
1: my general reaction to Bergman. It's just, I mean, I appreciate the art in his films, but man, can they be tough watches. If, so, if I uh, could
0: do it without actually spending the time. <laughs> <laughs> just just have it, just, like, injected into yeah. me Matrix-style. Just give Check. it to me. yeah. Check done. that one off. <laughs> oh, goodness. All right. Well, uh, this is a good, good talk, Andy. I'm excited about this series still, and that's good because we've got a lot more to come when the movie ends. Our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, handy. As Amazon always doeth. You know, they do. When you find the movie, there are some reviews and people who feel strongly uh, about it. Uh, Because we went high. I assume you went uh, low. I did go low. Indeed. Uh, Do do you want me to start? Do you want to start? How are you feeling?
1: Uh, I'll start. Uh, I got because I I couldn't go as low as I would have liked because, uh, you know, the one star is just there. There weren't a lot. And a lot of people were just complaining about. You know, dubbings and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I went with a two-star posted by Gary back in 2016. Gary posted two stars, and he uh, named his post two stars, and his review is, did like. (laughs) Thank you, caveman Gary. Ungawa, (laughs) did like. Mm.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I actually have some people who uh, can write. And so um, (laughs) I did go I did go into the one stars and I was it was frustrating because, you know, some of you're right. I mean, a lot of them are, um, you know, troublesome um, because people don't. Like, have such a challenge with reading movies. And, um, you know, okay. So, once you get past that, then we have the propaganda folks, right? The people who Mm. see this film as propaganda. And so, here's one M. Dean says that this is not only propaganda, it's pretentious propaganda. I viewed the French language version. This film may or may not follow the history of the event fairly closely, but I do not know the history since I do not know the historical details. I will not address its historical accuracy, but I am very skeptical, skeptical of its objectivity. There appears to be fabricated leftist slant in the film. The characters are all stereotypical leftist leftist propaganda. The left are portrayed as being peace-loving and only driven to violence by the wildly violent conspiratorial right-wing Christian conservative nationalist and organized conspiracy. Any media that renders an implied truth as being black and white causes me to immediately suspect deception on part of the artist." The acting was good and I enjoyed cinematography, but the film seems to be nothing more than propaganda to push the nonsense of communism or at least a leftist socialist agenda. It may or may employ out-of-context historical information and undeniably employed biased character portrayals. In spite of its propaganda failings, it was at least entertaining. Very refreshing compared to the cotton candy sticky gooey make-you-want-to-vomit-crap films made here in the U.S. today. In all, I rate it low, not because it's a bad film, but because it is propaganda. If it did not attempt to pimp what should have been a long dead leftist rhetoric, even in that time, I would have enjoyed it more i <laughs> okay, wow, right, so one uh points for cotton candy sticky gooey make you want to vomit crap films that is <laughs> grueling criticism. <laughs> Uh, uh, but I feel but like Roger I, Ebert coined I, I, that Right, first. <laughs> it, right. but I, I do think that that this kind of review is challenging, and a lot of people commented on, on this one that um, you know that he acknowledges that he doesn't have an understanding of the history, and then sees it as propaganda. It. This film is opinionated (laughs) by definition, and it takes about 10 seconds to understand that this was made with a particular perspective. So I I guess you can call it propaganda if you want. But knowing that going in, uh, at least I think helps you have a better viewing of it, uh, knowing just a little bit about the history. So I would say don't listen to Mr. Dean. Uh watch the movie. <laughs> Read the first paragraph of the wikipedia page and and you'll enjoy it more. I think first <laughs> you already admit first you attack me ad hominem by claiming I'm unaware of Greek history. How is that an attack? You already admitted you don't know the history <laughs> this is it is a rigorous back and forth in the Amazon comment section anyway I tell
1: you there's there's a movie in there Pete
0: I know, I know maybe ah. <laughs> uh, It's Argo 2, Andy. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM.